Hello, and welcome to Smart Supply Chain, a podcast produced by ALOM, featuring industry experts offering insight and clarity on a variety of supply chain topics. I'm your host, Jennifer Duell. As an environmentally and socially conscious global supply chain services provider, ALOM offers Six Sigma quality, technology leadership, flexibility, and true customer focus. ALOM delivers its clients' products flawlessly, enriching the end user experience and upholding their brand reputations. Our guest experts are ALOM CEO, Hannah Kane and Rosemary Coates, who is the executive director of the Reshoring Institute and president of Blue Silk Consulting. Rosemary and Hannah, thank you both for being here today. And we are going to be talking about nearshoring. And I have a just a very basic question, but I think we should define what nearshoring is in the context in which we're talking about it today for our audience. Rosemary, do you want to start? I run the Reshoring Institute, so we are focused on trying to bring manufacturing back to the U.S., but a lot of our clients are also considering low-cost markets in the areas. We also deal with nearshoring, which is manufacturing and clustering around the main markets in North America. So nearshoring would be like bringing manufacturing back to Canada or Mexico or somewhere nearby, maybe the Caribbean. And then reshoring is actually bringing manufacturing back and expanding manufacturing in the U.S. And how about you, Hannah? What do you think? When I look at manufacturing over the last several decades, we have outsourced a lot to different parts of the world that are far away. And it has inserted complexity into the supply chain, and that's coming back to bite us right now. It's also in many ways, especially in the U.S., big domestic security repercussions that many of us are concerned about. So when I look at nearshoring, it just makes sense to produce things closer to the market. It's more sustainable. It's less complexity. It's less risk. And when I look at U.S. reshoring, certainly it's a big opportunity for all U.S. manufacturers. Nearshoring is the buzzword right now. How much of that buzz do you attribute to the pandemic? And would we even be talking about nearshoring if COVID had never happened? Would we be talking about it to this degree? I think Rosemary has been talking about it for, what, a decade or more, Rosemary, is that right? I spent um, a good part of 15 years helping companies offshore to China because as a management consultant, that was the preferred strategy for most companies from about 2000 to 2012, at least. In 2012, during the presidential election, both Barack Obama and Mitt Romney were China bashing like crazy, saying, you know, it was all China's fault. All our issues and problems and so forth were China's fault. And I'm sort of like, oh, man, I, I can't tell anybody what I do for a living. This is awful. But actually, I think that was the tipping point. And that's when a lot of our clients started talking to us about the possibility of manufacturing in the U.S. and could they do it economically. But when the pandemic hit, and as Hannah mentioned, the biggest issue was risk. And all of a sudden, so many companies were having 
a struggle finding domestic suppliers. They couldn't keep inventory in the pipeline. They adopted lean methodologies that took all this inventory out of the process. So they were stuck with production lines that didn't have enough parts and components to be able to produce their products. They were struggling to find alternate suppliers in the U.S. It was just uh, a real sea change because risk was introduced really for the first time. And I think that's what uh, made companies sit up and take notice and understand they needed to have a different strategy. There are certainly some very expensive lessons that have been learned the last couple of years. Jennifer, as you know, I don't think that the supply chain disruption should be primarily attributed to COVID. I think the pandemic has been a contributing factor, but I believe that there are many other factors that are part of that entire equation. And part of it is certainly that most organizations, not all, but most organizations have not considered the risk of the complexity as part of their supply chain. And consequently, they have pursued the lowest possible unit cost without calculating the supply chain cost. And they have uh, certainly not had any modeling around risk and risk avoidance in the supply chain. Rosemary, when you were talking with organizations and they were offshoring a lot of their operations to China and other places, was cost the primary motivator? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there was very little effort put into total cost of ownership modeling. Most executives were laser focused on low cost operations and low cost labor. And those two components, not just the labor cost, but also the cost of facilities and other government regulations and agencies and oversight, all that makes the total cost of operating less expensive in a lot of low cost countries also. And that's what the executives were focused on. It wasn't worrying so much about logistics or risk or keeping their people up half the night talking to China or anything like that. But now the emphasis is much more even. And of course, with the tremendous increase in logistics costs, it's become less favorable and almost the reverse has happened for companies to manufacture overseas. I have a client that was paying 17 times more now in logistics costs than they were in 2019. We used to be able to get a container from Shanghai to Los Angeles for 1500 bucks or so. Now that same container is $20,000. And there's a lot of small companies that just can't take on that kind of increase in costs. And so they've gone out of business as a result. It's not so easy anymore to say that nearshoring is more expensive or less expensive than offshoring. It requires more analysis is what it sounds like to me, and people are finally doing that. That is correct, but you also have the entire variability. So many manufacturers are ordering parts that have very long lead times. And what's happening right now is, apart from suppliers now, having much higher minimum order quantities. You also have many overseas manufacturers having variable pricing, where they essentially decide the pricing when it hits their production line. And that creates huge uncertainty on the receiving end. Add to that that you have the cash outlay, then when it comes off the production line, now you have the entire transit 
cost and transit time, you have a lot of uncertainty all of a sudden built into this entire supply chain. So now that variability just may come in and kill any products because in the meantime, let's say a U.S. manufacturer may have taken orders for a deliverable to their customers. And now that may be on a fixed price model, or at least there might be an expectation on a fixed price model. And just because of that time lag and that uncertainty, you, you, it's just much harder to manage. So you always had the uncertainty when your product overseas with currency and a couple of other things, but now it's way worse. You don't know what the tariffs are going to be when you take delivery a year from now. So it's just a huge degree of uncertainty that you really cannot model and you cannot communicate to your customers. Rosemary, what are your thoughts on the way that organizations are thinking about nearshoring and reshoring to be closer to their end users? The one thing we've seen is a, a very high level of interest in the past two years in reshoring and the potential for bringing manufacturing back into the U.S. or never going overseas. But I think what most companies in reality are doing, instead of just we shipped everything to China, now we're going to bring everything back, that isn't the way it works. Um, most companies are taking an interim step to find domestic suppliers. So, for example, injection molding, blow molding, those things were industries that went overseas in you know the mid-2000s. I think that interim step of reducing your risk by having alternate suppliers in America is probably the most popular idea of all. And then secondly, the other one is to keep inventory on hand. In the 2000s, maybe even before that, we all wanted to make everything just in time make the supply chain frictionless and don't invest in any extra inventory anywhere. So during the pandemic, of course, that was exposed as a bad idea, essentially, because no one had inventory to keep or sustain their production. That happened to a lot of different companies. And as a result, many of them are now building inventories, not over the top per se, but building a little cushion into their inventory so they don't experience these kind of stockouts that they had during the pandemic. Lean is still a good principle to look at, but many organizations misinterpreted lean as in meaning you don't need any inventory. We are certainly seeing companies now increasing buffer stock. Jennifer, you asked about how manufacturers should look at nearshoring. I think that we are facing a new era where demand swings in the marketplace, especially in the consumer market, are going to be much more prevalent. And we are seeing it already driven to a large extent by social media. And that then demands that manufacturers are becoming way more agile, building agility into their delivery system. So right now we have certainly over the last couple of years been backsliding on the agility. How do you not only avoid that long lead time and the risk, but how do you build agility into your supply chain such that you can react faster to market demands? Is it an accurate statement to say that both of you are fans of nearshoring? So we're the Reshoring Institute, and of course we're focused on the U.S., but absolutely. As Hannah pointed out, 
anything that you can produce closer to the marketplace is going to give you a strategic advantage, not only in terms of logistics costs, but in deliveries. As she was saying, their expectations have changed also. So good old Amazon has taught us that we can get anything we want overnight. And that has filtered down into industrial buying also. Industrial buyers want stuff for their manufacturing site as quickly as they can get it. And that means you can't wait around six weeks while something's on the water. You have to anticipate what that demand is going to be, either have inventory close by or be able to make it on demand with a customization at the final end of it. Uh, so nearshoring in, in a nearby country or somewhere where you can have access to market almost immediately is very important and a new way that I think manufacturers are thinking about their operations. So I'm certainly very much in favor of nearshoring for a number of reasons. First of all, of course, it's a much more sustainable option. It uh, increases agility. It removes risk and complexity from the supply chain. We need to do more of it, and our tier ones need to do more with their, their suppliers. But it's not an easy thing to do. It's not an overnight, now it's done. And it's certainly for many years, it's not going to de-risk the supply chain in the manner that many people are thinking. So we talked about some of the impediments to nearshoring and reshoring, labor being one of them. Are there too many organizations that see nearshoring as the 100% solution and they're a little misguided with that? No, I don't think so. Uh, McKinsey did a survey asking supply chain organizations who were using nearshoring as one of the strategies to overcome the supply chain disruptions. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was about 20%, and, and that has been growing, and more companies are actually now looking at it from a very strategic perspective. It's long overdue, but as I said, it's going to take time. I believe that the supply chain crisis is going to continue on for about a decade, and I think it's going to take about a decade to build up some of the infrastructure that we need to have in order to be able to absorb more of the manufacturing in the U.S. Rosemary, do you think the concept of reshoring and the work that's involved in doing that, is it a daunting task? I, I think it's like anything else. It's a, it's a huge task for sure, but you take it a little bit at a time. We did a, a survey of 50 manufacturing companies in the state of New York and asked them how they fared through the pandemic and what steps were they taking now. And I would say at least 80% of the companies said they were trying to find domestic sources. So I think that's one step towards reshoring is finding your sources in the U.S. and then considering how you can do more manufacturing either in the U.S. or close by. A lot of companies are choosing Mexico. The other thing to consider, too, is it's not maybe appropriate for a company to leave China either. If their market is in Asia, which is a growth market, you have to pay attention to that as your potential market. So what we usually coach our clients to do is to consider keeping some manufacturing in the market you're serving. So keeping some manufacturing perhaps in China or Malaysia or 
Vietnam or, you know, somewhere in Asia to serve the Asian market and then to bring back some manufacturing to the U.S. to serve the North American market or even Mexico and into Europe to serve the European market. So it's a much more sophisticated approach and decision-making process than we've ever seen before. I think uh, supply chain people and senior executives have gotten smarter over the last couple of years. And all of a sudden their eyes are opened and they understand that there's got to be a global strategy, not just a where can we find cheap manufacturing. And maybe last quarter was the first quarter where the U.S. actually grew faster than China, which was remarkable because China, of course, had the Chinese New Year last quarter. So we're doing really well with our growth right now. But certainly there are other issues that we need to consider also that also impact supply chains, such as the inflation that comes with that. Are there parts of the U.S. that are inherently more appropriate for manufacturing or bringing back some of these manufacturing operations? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are lower cost environments in different places in the U.S. Texas is one place. I've had a client that just opened a big factory near the DFW airport. Throughout the South, there's lower cost environments. We do a lot of site selection work with our clients. And most of the decisions are based on a lot of factors, not just low cost areas. So you may want to be in Silicon Valley, even though it's more expensive here, but because you're close to the designers and if you're working on first articles, for example, there's a lot of development of new products in this area. And then all across the country, there are different reasons. There are some companies that want to go to New York and Other companies that want to go to South Carolina or Texas or Alabama just depends on what the needs are and and what their priorities are for selection. Certainly the business environment in each state differs, and that's absolutely something one needs to take into account. But in the end, the most important thing these days is the skilled labor. It's where can you get really great staff members who know what they are doing. So we are all competing for staff members. We are all competing for that skill set. We know we are going to have a deficit of about 2 million people in supply chain, 4 million people in manufacturing. These are daunting numbers. And I believe whoever is smart goes for wherever the workforce is and also uh, sets up their systems so that they can be part of upskilling and training that workforce, attracting the workforce. And without that, no manufacturer can be successful. We all try to automate as much as we can, but in the end, we are all people dependent and having that highly skilled workforce is important. I think we should be very optimistic about the shift in the world. And I'm very excited about what I see in the marketplace in terms of executives taking a full approach, a full global approach to manufacturing and understanding all the details of the decision to go where and why and how and what risks should be looked at. So it's, it's a, like a different world we're operating in than we were 20 years ago. And I'm very optimistic about the future because of that. Well, and Hannah is a natural born optimist. We talk about this all the time. So hit me with your optimism, Hannah. Okay, well, I do believe that it's healthy and a silver lining coming out of the supply chain crisis. 
that all organizations are reconsidering their supply chain, are thinking more strategically about their supply chain, and many are now starting to do risk modeling as part of their supply chain. So I think that's a very positive impact. I also feel that the sustainability is a very big part of this decision parameter. But even more so, these days, I'm looking at governance, because that's a thing I've been very concerned about here during the pandemic, is as we are outsourcing to other parts of the world that we've not been able to visit because of the pandemic situation. We simply don't know what's going on. We don't know whether the quality specs are being kept. We don't know whether the materials are correct. We don't know how things are sourced. We don't know what's happening with the labor. So there's a lot of governance issues unless you have feet on the ground. And so many organizations have had to rely on the say-so of their suppliers. And there's this old saying with trust but verify. And when you cannot verify, that can bring you into a dangerous situation. So I really look forward to getting more production and more manufacturing closer to the markets to build in that agility, but also to build in governance and sustainability into the supply chain. If people are interested in reshoring, we publish all of our research. We are a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. We publish everything on our website. People should feel free to go there and look at our case studies and white papers and our surveys and all kinds of good stuff and download whatever you want. It's all free and we offer it as a public service. So, you know, I would love that. And that's uh, the reshoringinstitute.org. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you both being here today. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Smart Supply Chain. We hope you will join us for our next episode. For more information or to contact ALOM, go to alom.com. That's A-L-O-M.com.